How can you even defend a position you believe blindly or never even truly studied? Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses are not Christians. They believe in an entirely different Jesus, a Jesus that never even existed. Is your life here on earth meaningless and purposeless? Ask Bertrand Russell. He says that our existence here is pitiless indifference. Being in a Christian home makes your kids no more a Christian than them standing in the garage makes them a car. They need to hear the gospel of Christ and receive the free gift of salvation personally. Welcome to Contending for Christ Apologetics, where we contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to C4C Apologetics. What I want to do is I want to finish a series that I started on about two years ago in which we were exposing Calvinism tenets. What we started doing was we were breaking down the TULIP acronym, the five major points of Calvinism, and just looking into them to see if they're actually biblical or not. We've already started with the two, uh, the first two of them with total depravity and unconditional election. We've already started looking at those, and what we realized was total depravity, what Calvinists actually mean is total inability. Uh, anybody would agree that mankind is totally depraved. But when you look into the teaching of total depravity, what they're actually teaching is total inability to even respond to the gospel call. Then we talked about unconditional election. Unconditional election meaning the fact that God chose and elected certain people to go to heaven. And yes, I'm going to go ahead and do a negative inference, double inference, whatever the case is, and say if he chooses this person to go to heaven, then he's naturally choosing this person not to go to heaven and ultimately go to hell. And it's a teaching that I find completely unbiblical, and it's, it's what they do that's called eisegesis. It's where they take scripture, and instead of exegeting scripture, exegeting, like excavating, you're taking out of scripture what God intended to have taken out. What they're doing is eisegesis. They're taking their thoughts and putting it into scripture to make the pastors say what they believe it says. And so we've seen the first two tenets were really unbiblical. And you can find more videos and more in-depth discussions about it. I'm a cursory guy. So that's what you're going to find here on this channel. So what we're going to do, like I said, is we're picking this back up. we got three more tenets to talk about. And today we're talking about limited atonement. The next couple of videos is going to be Irresistible Grace and then Perseverance of the Saints. So limited atonement. What is that? You've not heard of that before? You may have heard of particular redemption, or you may have heard of intentional atonement. So it's under different names, but no matter what name it's under, it's still the same heresy that's being promoted. Basically, in the most fundamental definition is that limited atonement is that when Jesus died on the cross, his death was only for the elect. He did not die for the world. He did not die for all mankind. His death on the cross was only for the elect. He didn't die for anybody else. That's what limited atonement advocates teach. In matter of fact, this is probably the weakest, by far the weakest argument within Calvinism that even the majority of Calvinists don't even subscribe to this tenet. That's why if you hear of a four-point Calvinist, more nine times out of ten, they're a four-point Calvinist because they reject limited atonement because it's such a bad idea. It's such a bad concept. That doesn't have any biblical basis. But yet they try to find in Scripture where it says limited atonement or where it teaches that Jesus only died for the elect. And I want to look at some of these passages. The first passage, if you have your Bible with you, if not, go get it. If you don't have one, 
go buy one. So, Isaiah chapter 53. Now, we're very familiar with Isaiah chapter 53, or at least most of us are. Isaiah 53 is the suffering servant chapter, which prophesies Jesus' death, his coming, his being rejected, him having uh, sin laid upon him, him being led as a lamb to the slaughter and didn't open his mouth, all these things. And it's in 53, verse number 11, where these limited atonement advocates get their idea of limited atonement. At least one passage we're going to look at. And it says in Isaiah chapter 53, verse number 11, he says, By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. And what they're going to do there is they're going to say, See, he's going to bear their iniquities. Whose iniquities is he bearing? Well, if you go to the nearest antecedent, he's bearing those that are justified. The justified many. And those are the ones in which he's bearing their iniquities. And so from the surface, it looks okay. Yeah, he justifies many and he bears their iniquities. But if you look at verse number six, if you go about six, five, six chapters or verses before, it says this. All we... You and me and everybody else. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Not the elect. Not only the elect. But the Lord's laid on Jesus, the Passover lamb, the iniquity of us all. And so when they're looking at verse number 11, they're saying, See, my righteous servant's going to justify many and he's bearing their iniquities. Well, that's true. Jesus can die for all, but only justify many. Because the justification comes on part of the belief in the work of Christ on the cross. And this is what we're going to understand through limited atonement advocates. They completely misunderstand the purpose of the cross. The purpose of the cross. And before you call me a heretic, I just want to go ahead and start there. Before you call me a heretic, hear me out. Jesus' death on the cross didn't technically save us. Jesus' death on the cross provided the ability, the opportunity for us to be saved and receive eternal life. How can I say that and not be a heretic? Because we're told constantly in Scripture that the gospel message is believe. Turn from your ways of believing in who Jesus is, believing that your works get you to heaven. Turn from that and look to the finished work of Christ on the cross. It's only through belief do we get saved and justified. And so Jesus' death on the cross, he lived the life we couldn't live, died the death you and I deserve to die. And so his death, and we're going to talk about this here in a little bit, was the satisfaction to God the Father to pay for our sins. So Jesus' death provided that door. Jesus says, I am the door. And so it provided the way to be saved, to receive eternal life. But it only comes through belief. And so, yes, Jesus can bear all iniquities, the iniquities of the entire world, but only justifying many because it's only those many that come to him in faith on his finished work on the cross. So that's first, right off the bat. We would need to go ahead and get that across these limited atonement advocates completely misunderstand scripture. We can even read this in Romans chapter 4, 
when Romans chapter 4, Paul is using Abraham as an example. And this is what Paul says. If Abraham were justified by works, he hath aware of uh, reason to glory, but not before God. For what saith scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward, not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. And so numerous times in Scripture we're told that salvation, that eternal life, only comes through faith. In Jesus' death on the cross, we so desperately need it. We couldn't get to God any way else. He tore the veil from the top down. He provided that way. He's the mediator between man and God and man and the Father, being half God, half man, being the perfect hypostatic union. He provided that doorway. But we must come to him in faith. Limited atonement advocates totally misunderstand that. The next part is, the next passage that they use is Matthew chapter 1 verse 21. We're probably very familiar with this story. Even if you're not familiar with what happens in Matthew 21, it's the virgin birth. Okay, so Matthew chapter 1 verse number 21, I believe it is. And scripture says, And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. He shall save his people from their sins. So limited atonement folks, they look at that verse and they say, See, the only sins that Jesus is giving or paying for are his people. And those his people are his elect. So this is one of the verses. It's a little easier to go ahead and understand how it's faulty than Isaiah 53, 11. Because Jesus came and John the Baptist says in John chapter 1 verse 29, Behold, the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world. Not the sins of the elect, the sins of the world. But here we're saying that Jesus saves his people from their sins. And so let me ask you, how do you become part of God's family? How do you become part of his people? Well, part of his people is the fact that we must turn to him for salvation. Once we receive the free gift of eternal life, we become his child. John says it perfectly. Well, because he's right under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But he says it perfectly. He says, But as many as received him, Jesus, to them gave he power to become what? Sons of God or children of God, even to them that believe on his name. And so the way that we become his people is the avenue through faith, through the fact of looking at Jesus for the finished work on the cross. And so, yes, Jesus is saving those people that turn to him, turn to him, from their sins. Jesus' death on the cross provided the opportunity for all to come to him, but only those that come to Jesus in faith have their sins not even atoned for, because that's an Old Testament word, not a New Testament, but they have their sins forgiven. Their sins are remitted. Their sins are gone, past, present, and future. And then we have the imputed righteousness of Jesus that God looks at us through Jesus' lens and through Jesus' blood on our account and looks at us as children. So yes, Jesus does save his people from their sins. But in order to be his people, we have to turn to him in faith. So what's the other one? The other one is Matthew, again, same book. Chapter 20, verse number 28. And you could go in-depth in these more. You could probably find some other people uh, talking about these passages a little more in-depth. And I encourage you to check them out. 
But here we go. So in chapter 20 of Matthew, verse 28, Scripture says, Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and give his life a ransom for many. Again, there's that word many. So Jesus came not to serve, not to be ministered unto, but to serve and minister. Okay? So he gave his life a ransom for many. So the first thing to realize is this word ransom is a noun, not a verb. And so it's not something that's being done, it's something. Basically, ransom is only used two times in the New Testament. That's it. And basically, ransom is just a price paid to liberate a captive or a slave. So this is a price that was uh, needed to be paid for someone to become free. So we all have a sin debt. We all have this payment that we have to pay. We can pay it one of two ways. We can die in our sins, never receiving forgiveness, never receiving eternal life, and then we pay that sin debt in an eternal torment place called hell, which I pray that doesn't happen. The other way we could have this sin debt paid is if we look to the cross and we come to Jesus in faith, saying, Jesus, you died for me on the cross to forgive all of my sins, and you tell me that you are the resurrection and life. If I believe in you, though I were dead, yet will I live. And so I trust in that, that you are saving me and forgiving me of all my sins. And I thank you for that sacrifice and the opportunity you've given me to come to you in faith. Jesus paid the ransom, but that ransom is only available and only received, only accepted in actually liberating the captives if you turn to him in faith. Again, Jesus did pay the ransom for many, but it's only the many that actually apply that ransom to their account. That ransom could be sitting there, but unless we act upon it and believe in the finished work of Christ, it's just sitting there. And so in order to be ransomed, we have to freely choose and believe the finished work of Christ on the cross for our sin debt. The last one, and this one's actually pretty easy as well is John chapter 10, John chapter 10, verse number 15. John 10, verse number 15, it says, As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father, and I lay my life down for the sheep. I lay my life down for the sheep. So, limited to advocate, say, see, he gives his life up for the sheep, and Christians are the sheep. Oh, not so fast. You see, when, remember in Matthew, uh, Jesus looks at the multitudes and he says they look like a sheep uh, without a shepherd. A common illustration, common figurative speech or a metaphor, whatever the case is, is that people, all people, are sheep. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Okay, so sheep, the sheep, is just a word that Jesus uses to identify people with him being the great shepherd. What's interesting is the only time that Jesus says, my sheep, is in a verse after and a couple verses before, where he says, my sheep hear my voice, and my sheep know me, and I know my sheep. The only way to become his sheep, so that he could say, my sheep, and we could be a part of that family with him as our shepherd, is to come to him in faith. Come to him in faith. Like we already read in John chapter 1. He gave the power to become sons of God. And so 
If you have not turned to Christ for eternal life and salvation and asked for forgiveness for your sin debt from his price on the cross, then you are not his sheep. You are still the sheep. And so what's interesting about John 10, 15 is the fact that Jesus doesn't say, I lay down my life for my sheep. He says, I lay down my life for the sheep. And go check out different translations. King James, New American Standard, NIV, New Revised Standard. Well, the message just completely jacks it up. But a couple others. No translation says that Jesus dies for his sheep. It always says Jesus died for the sheep. In order to hear Jesus, in order to be known of Jesus, we have to be his sheep through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ through his sacrifice on the cross. So John 10, 15 doesn't even work. So the biggest thing is limited atonement advocates, they completely misunderstand the purpose of the cross. You have the work on the cross and you have the application of the cross. The work of the cross, Jesus died for your sins. The application is you must receive Jesus' death on the cross for your sins. Okay. What are some arguments that they tend to use? Well, I'm only going to go over two arguments that limited atonement advocates use. Number one is they say that limited atonement is a more loving God than those that believe in what's called general atonement or what I believe in, general atonement. General atonement teaches that when Jesus died on the cross, he died for all. Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. When I am lifted up on the cross, I will draw all men to myself. And so that would be general atonement. Now, limited atonement advocates, they say, oh, limited atonement has a more loving God. Because as opposed to general atonement, where Jesus' death provided the ability for people to get saved, limited atonement teaches that Jesus' death on the cross actually got people saved. And there's a difference. But I would find this one pretty comical, and I hate to say it kind of uh, idiotic. Uh, I hate to use that word, but because think about it. So say God had the ability to save everybody, okay? Limited atonement. They say that God only died for the elect, or Jesus only died for the elect, right? But why couldn't Jesus have died for everybody, right? If Jesus had the ability to do it, why not? What they're teaching is, though God had the ability to save all, God chose only to save the elect. Now, it may be loving for the elect, but it's pretty unloving for the non-elect. So, whereas general atonement is definitely more loving. Because general atonement teaches that Jesus died for everybody, and he gave everybody the same playing field that anybody can come to Christ through faith in his finished work on the cross. That way, if they want to, they can find the doorway. They can find Christ's salvation. If they don't want to, they're going to stay hard. They're going to stay unforgiven. But they've made that choice. It is much more loving to generate the offer for all as opposed to only some. And that's why Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved who? the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that who, whosoever believes, shall not perish but have everlasting life. It is way more loving to give the ability, opportunity for all, than to just only give it to a small select of people. So, 
that's kind of a bogus argument. Again, it's not a very strong tenet. That's why majority of Calvinists don't even believe in it. The other argument they use is if limited atonement is wrong and Jesus died for all, then no people are guilty because Jesus' death was for all. And again, this just shows the ignorance of their side on what the cross did. The cross did not technically save people right then and there. The cross gave the open doorway for people to find eternal life through Jesus' finished work on the cross. So they completely botch up the purpose of the cross. And that's pretty much it. They completely botch it. They totally don't understand it. Now think about it. If the elect is actually saved upon the death of Jesus on the cross, then why witness to him? Why evangelize? If I'm part of the elect, then Jesus' death on the cross 2,000 years ago saved me. I didn't have to do nothing, period. I didn't even have to believe. Jesus' death saved me, period, dot, done, closed. But that's not what we see. We see a constant commandment to go and preach the gospel to every creature, to go into the world, to make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them, and everything. That's why they completely misunderstand it. Because if Jesus' death actually saved that moment, there would be no need for evangelizing. There'd be no need for sanctification or anything like that. There'd be no need for belief. They completely misunderstand the difference of the work and the application of the cross. So I have some arguments against limited atonement. And yeah, I'm looking at my notes for a quick second. Again, Calvinists maintain that God is powerful enough to save all, but he only chose to save the elect. Now that's kind of foul and that's kind of, uh, you know, unloving. This is why I believe, you know, atheists sometimes, you know, have this idea that God is just this immoral monster. And we are not even talking about uh, some of the issues they might bring up in the Old Testament. They just look at Calvinism. They say, okay, you have this God that could have saved everybody, but he only chose to save the elect, the predestined. Jesus could have died for the world, but no, he only died for the elect, predestined. And so they look at this, and you're right, it does make my God look like an immoral person or a totally unfair person or a totally unjust person. And that's totally not who my God is. That's totally not the character trait, my God. So the, the limited atonement advocates are very much teaching a very unloving view of God which atheists love to jump on and use it against a Christian. And again, the Calvinist is so worried about universal salvation that they reject universal opportunity. I can't say it enough. They misunderstand the distinction between the work of Christ on the cross, the work of the atonement, and the application of the atonement. And for instance, Passover. The Passover in Exodus 12 is a perfect example of what I mean. This is a perfect illustration. So the Jews were in, were in Egypt. They were slaves to Egypt. And so God had used the ten plagues. And the tenth plague was that death angel. And so what the children of Israel were told to sacrifice a lamb, to take the blood of the lamb and put it on their doorpost, and the death angel would pass over that house. It wasn't the death of the lamb that allowed the death angel to pass over. The death of the lamb provided the blood, which enabled the people to apply it to their door by faith. And their faith in the word of God and the death of the lamb allowed the death angel to pass over. 
It wasn't the death of the lamb. If they just stopped there, nothing would have happened. They had to believe in the blood of the lamb and apply it to the doorpost. Or for us today, apply it to our heart and believe in the finished work of Christ. That's a clear picture and example of the work of the atonement and the application of atonement that these limited atonement folks totally get wrong. Now, there's a lot of passages that clearly refute limited atonement. I've already talked about John 1.29. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. But then we get to John chapter 4. John chapter 4 is when the, Jesus meets the woman at the well. And she goes and evangelizes her, her whole town. And this is what they say. And they said unto the woman, Now we believe, not because of thy saying, for we heard him ourselves, and know this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. The Savior of the world. Not the elect. The Savior of the world. He came to save the world. But the world did not come to him through faith, only some. Another passage we could use is 2 Corinthians. If you go to 2 Corinthians chapter number 5. Chapter number 5. Do, do, do. Where are we at? Chapter 5. Verse number 14. He says, We thus judge that if one died for all, then all were dead, and that he died for all. So here we're told that Jesus died for all people because all people were dead in sin and trespasses, and that he died for all. So, clear example of Jesus' death being for all people. And we can start looking at the pastoral epistles. One thing Paul wanted to get across to Timothy was the clear understanding of the gospel message. And he says here in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse number 6, that Jesus gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. His ransom was given for all the world. And then we stay in the same book. We go to chapter 4, verse number 10. We trust in the living God. Who is the Savior of the elect? No, Savior of all men, especially those that believe. So this is interesting what Paul did here, what the Holy Spirit did here. There's two types. There's two classes. We're told that Jesus is the Savior of all men, and Jesus is the Savior of those that believe. This is a clear passage that says Jesus came to die for all men, but specifically for those that believe. Why? Because those that believe, believed. They went to Christ, went to the cross for faith, with faith on the finished work of Jesus on the cross. They had their sins forgiven. Then we go to 2 Peter. And this is a passage that doesn't make sense if you're looking at it from a limited atonement eyes. 2 Peter chapter number 3, verse number 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So let me ask you this. Why would God say he doesn't want everybody to perish, but he wants everybody to come to repentance if God never provided the way? If God only had Jesus die for the elect, not all, then why would God tell us through Peter that he wants all to come to repentance? Why say he wants everybody to come to repentance if it's not even possible for a lot of the people? That would be foul. He says all to come to repentance because the offer was made to all. And it's only those that come to him in faith that receive that forgiveness. 
I don't know how they get around that one. And then finally, the only other one we're going to look at is 1 John chapter 2, verse number 2. And again, this is one that they can't get around. Reason why so weak, such a weak argument. Talking about Jesus, and he is the propitiation, the satisfaction for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus' death was the satisfaction. God said a blood sacrifice is needed to atone, to forgive, to remove sins, to remove transgression. Jesus' death, the blood of Jesus, provided that satisfaction. Hebrews talks all about it, starting in chapter 8 through 9, I believe it is, 7 through 9, about the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament Levitical priesthood and the sacrifices and Jesus' priesthood and sacrifice. Jesus' blood was that perfect sacrifice to forgive anybody. Anybody that comes to him in faith for the forgiveness of sins through his blood will receive that forgiveness and they will become sons of God. So limited atonement, thank you for sticking around if you're still with us, is not a biblical doctrine, it's a it's a unbiblical idea, it's an unbiblical concept. Again, it's so weak that even most Calvinists don't even believe in it and don't even subscribe to it. It is clearly unloving, clearly unloving because they teach that Jesus died a death on the cross that actually saved, but it only saved some people. It actually did not save others, which sent them off into a place called hell. The arguments are very weak. Uh, they totally misunderstand the work of the atonement and the application of the atonement. But I got to end with this. Realize that if you're, you know, not a Calvinist and everything, or you're looking at this for more material against Calvinism, realize Calvinists are not the enemy. Okay? Calvinists are not the enemy. I have a lot of Calvinist friends I love. One of my greatest spiritual mentors is a Calvinist. He's a Johnny Mac fan. But he loves Jesus just as much as I love Jesus. And I know he's saved and he knows I'm saved. And we just don't agree to this. But they're not the enemy. I just personally believe that they're doing eisegesis and they're putting their own words into scripture. As opposed to what we're trying to do is take the words uh, out of what God is saying. Trying to see what God actually says. And examine it from there. They're just, what I believe is... There is more philosophy in Calvinism than there is doctrine. There are more man's ideas that sound good. They might sound right. And they take this verse and this verse and this verse and they put it together and they have this concept. But it's not contextually accurate. And so they're not the enemy. We just pray that maybe we can have good conversations, good discussions, just to knock some of these topics. Uh, doctrines, doctrines and teachings out so we can come to the fullness of scripture and rightly divide the word of truth. So thanks for checking in. Go ahead and check out my total depravity, my unconditional election. Now we're going to be doing the irresistible grace of perseverance of the saints videos. So drop me a line in the comments below. If you haven't already subscribed, hit the subscribe button. If you are subscribed, please keep watching these channels. Keep watching these videos. Keep hitting the likes. Keep hitting the comments. If you really like this ministry and you think this information is good to get God's great name out there, please go ahead and 
and I just share the videos, share the channel, allow people to know that there's normal folks like us that aren't these big old bobblehead doctor people and everything, but people that just love scripture, love to exegete, love to study, and just share it. Allow people to know the truth of God's word. So until next time, thanks for watching and God bless. Thanks for listening. We pray this ministry glorifies God and edifies you, the listener. For more great content, including videos, blogs, newsletters, and a free ebook, check out our website at c4capologetics.weekly.com. You can also email us at c4capologetics at gmail.com with questions or ideas for future episodes. We truly appreciate you. Please like, share, and comment on this episode, and don't forget to subscribe for future episode notifications. Thanks for checking in, and remember to be bold and keep contending for Christ.